It's time for Comfort, Peace, and Freedom with Ken Rusk. Ken's guest this week is retired Navy veteran Doug Paul Fleming. Doug retired from his business of civil and general construction and has written a book about his difficult upbringing. Ken and Doug will talk about how faith over fear in difficult situations is the key. Doug uses his life experiences to help others overcome trauma and is a supporter of mental health wellness and a veteran advocate. Now, here's your host, Ken Rusk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom podcast. I'm Ken Rusk. Each week, I try to interview world-class personalities about exactly what it takes to become successful and their thoughts on my three favorite words, comfort, peace, and freedom. So let's get right to it. Doug Fleming, thanks for coming on uh, the show, the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom podcast. You know, you have done so many things, uh, veteran of the United States Navy, instruction entrepreneur, business consultant, life coach, veterans advocate, which I think is really, really cool. I'd like to focus our, our time today on your time in the service and the things that you do and promote after that, because I think it's great. And I think I want to say not only for me and my family, but for everybody listening, thank you so much for your service, defending these very precious, and it seems like even more precious freedoms we have today, because they're constantly under this insane attack. And I know you see it on TV and I see it as well. Like, you, like, what is going on in this world? So, so thank you for getting us to this point. Hopefully, we can hold on to it for the rest of the way. <laughs> Sounds good, Ken. Great to be here. So, my father went into the Marines when he was around seventeen, and I know that was about the time that you went into uh, the Navy. Can you tell us why you decided, as a young person, to join the Navy? I know everyone has their different reasons, but seventeen is pretty young. Can you tell us why you decided to do that? Let me see if I can give you the cliff notes and keep it short. Um, <laughs> didn't have a lot of options in front of me. Um, and the military was the best option, both for me personally and to figure out what to do with life post high school. I was already on my own, uh, out, of, out of my house for years uh, by the time I enlisted. For me, going into the military, it was a natural transition. But um, I, I, I had a feeling as far back as I can remember that I was going into the military you know, even before I was a teenager. You know, ex explain that. At 17, back in your day, I would say, I would venture to say that young men were a little more independent and forward-thinking than they are today, and certainly more brave in some levels on making major decisions. You know, there's, there's another piece of that story that I got to kind of fill you in. I, I wasn't exactly a, an untroubled kid. I came from a broken home and a, and a battered upbringing. You know, I, I struggled through a lot of uh, abuse from a very, very young age. And at the age of, I was like 13, um, it kind of came to a head and I left home. If you, if you want to read my book, it's got a lot more detail in it, but that's kind of the crux of it. So um, I was on my own. I, had, I was blessed that a family kind of took me in, but I still had to pay my own way and, and figure out how to, how to finish high school and survive because the military is not taking you if you don't have a diploma. So I got into some trouble. I got into some scrapes and, um, you know, one of those gentlemen in a black robe who sits up on a, on a higher perch was encouraging me to show him enlistment papers. You know, he was going to kind of look the other way on something else. If I, if I came back uh, with my uh, enlistment into the Navy. So I got, I got in before I got out of high school, but everything was contingent on getting that diploma. So there was a lot of weight on me from the legal side, from the military side, from the fact that I really didn't have a place to go. Once I graduated, 
So there was a lot of pressure from a lot of a lot of directions, and, and the military offered me um, an opportunity. And honestly, it was kind of built for the military, so I was I was looking forward to getting into it. So for those of you listening, what uh, what Doug's talking about is he wrote an amazing book called Twenty Four Hundred Forty Two Steps to Crazy, and um, we're going to get into talking about that book in just a minute. I wanted to get a little a little background here. So you're 17, you go into the Navy. For, for anyone who's younger out there who might think to themselves, you know, I'd like to know what that experience was like. Can you tell us like in, in your first 30 days, what was the worst thing that happened to you, the worst part of the experience? And maybe conversely, what was the best part of that first month or so getting used to that? You mean from stepping onto the plane and getting out of the MEP station and heading into boot camp? Yeah, exactly. You know, I got to tell you, it was it was a little bit unnerving because it's all new and you're getting on an airplane and traveling. I went from Connecticut to San Diego where I went to boot. Uh, you know, ironically, in book two, you'll see a few things that happen, or book three, you'll see a few things that happened to me in that transition. I had more challenges with the outside world than I did inside the military community. Once the boot camp formed and we kind of hit the barracks and things settled in, to me, I got to be honest with you, I, I, I expected boot camp to be a hell of a lot tougher than it was. Uh, so for me, it was it was uh, more boring um, and kind of mundane than anything else. Now, again, Navy boot camp isn't isn't the Marine Corps, so it's not it wasn't exactly a, a, a difficult uh, uh, was it 13 weeks, 15 weeks, 16 weeks, whatever the hell it was. But in the same breath, I was appointed as commander of the company while we were inside the barracks. So of course, my one of my first experiences with suicide is about a month into boot camp. One of the guys in the barracks uh, tried to kill himself with a Bic razor, slashed his wrists all to hell. So for me, boot camp was was a was a walk in the park. Yet for one of my one of my shipmates, it was it was just far too much to be yelled at and have to march around and push ups and so on. And he tried to tried to kill himself. That was my first exposure to a tremendous amount of blood and insanity in being in a, uh, a position of being in charge of 80 men in a barracks. For somebody out there who's going through what you have gone through in your own personal life up to that point, that obviously toughened you up to take that challenge on. What do you say to someone who's unsure about if they're tough enough to go into the service? I mean, maybe not so much that they want to hurt themselves, but what do you say to someone who's thinking about doing it and they don't know if they're cut out for it? The biggest thing I would say is don't think months in advance. Think about the next task in front of you and accomplish that, okay? At the same breath, think of what you're going to feel like when you've accomplished boot camp, for example, or two-year, four-year, six-year run in the military. It sets you up for success in many different areas. So many people struggle to get out of boot camp or get out of short-term or short timelines within the military, changing commands, doing different things inside the service. To succeed in it, for me at least, I've always gone back and said, I've got to take that first step. And the first step is always the hardest. Then once you get those steps going, you, you kind of fall into a routine and a rhythm. And once you get a few of the tasks under your belt, it's never as hard as we make it out to be mentally as to what it was, what we think it's going to be, you know, mainly physically getting yelled at and, you know, trying to figure out how to shoot a weapon and, and do your job and tie ropes and march straight and seam straight and gig lines and all these things, they can be overwhelming. But if you take them one piece at a time and don't allow yourself to get overwhelmed, you can do it. 
So this is a this is kind of the opposite of what I talk about a lot when I talk about seeing the future, seeing the vision, seeing what you want your life to look like. This is kind of the opposite. You're saying you're saying, you know, it's one thing to chop it up into 12 months deployment or 12 months or or whatever, six months or whatever the, the length of time is. But you're saying take it day by day or task by task versus trying to look too far ahead. Yeah, I was I was deployed for two years, one month on a three-year, two-month hitch on board the USS Dallas, SSN 700. If you ever saw the movie Hunt for October, I was on that boat. Oh, wow. But, cool. uh, yeah. But uh, it, when we deployed, you broke these things down into whether it's port and starboard or 18-hour watch bill. You were on six hours, off six hours, or on six, off 12. You broke it down into those simple watch station, then your post-watch station, then your sleep time, your meal time, your meal time. And you focused on what you had to accomplish in that specific moment. If you tried to think about going underwater for three, four, five months, you, you kind of lose your mind. But in the same breath, we had specific targets. You know, if it was a 90-day patrol, you knew that at the, uh, you know, halfway point, 45 days, we would have steak and lobster. So you still got to look at the big picture, the exit strategy, the end point, you know, the reason you're doing all these things. And you do have to break it down into phases, you know, goals that you're going to achieve. But when you're trying to keep yourself from getting overwhelmed, they're like, how am I going to do this for six months, a year, two years? Remember, break it down into your day-to-day activity and even break it down further to watch station to watch station, uh, almost hour by hour, until you can get yourself into a rhythm and a routine and not worry about the end game. Do what you need to do today to meet your end goal. Amazing advice, especially for someone who's got some trepidation about what they're about to do. Now, you actually went underwater, you're saying. You were in a submarine. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. That would have to only add to the normal fears that somebody would have of going on a major ship or go, getting deployed somewhere to be to be underwater. Did did you, um when you were underwater, was there anybody that you kind of laid off your fear to? Like, hey, let's get in this together if, if we can kind of help each other. Talk about sharing the goal or sharing that moment of, hey, let's get to the next level together here. Nope. I don't ever remember a conversation with somebody else where we said we were afraid. Okay. But it was certainly unspoken because you knew, yeah, we were in Libya the first time. All right. And, and on my first deployment, we had five fires. And in a submarine, you don't worry about sinking. You worry about fires. Imagine closing your eyes and walking into a room you can't breathe and you've got to put out a fire that you can't see. So on my first, my first deployment, I left um, Groton Subbase, flew halfway around the world, met up with the boat and Diego Garcia. And then a couple of days later, we cut loose from the tender and we're out deployed for, I think our first underwater run was 78 straight days. So when we, you know, we shut the hatches and went under, there really isn't time to be afraid, but when you're staring at fires and the things that you do in the military, yeah, it's, it, it can get pretty intense. We never talked about it. I never talked about it. But you looked at each other and you kind of knew, like, this sucks. Or, Christ, I almost, you know, almost didn't make it back from that one. And honestly, <clears throat> two or three times, I, I, was, um, I got pretty banged up in the Navy. They tried to kill me a couple of times. And I'm, uh, you know, I got a deep faith in the baby Jesus in the spirit world. They pulled me out of it. Yeah. Um, you know, so the fear, I never really talked about it. Um, I never talked about it until I actually started writing, until I became an author. Well, we're getting close to that. But since you mentioned fear, you talk about 
believe in faith over fear. Was there a lot of faith in when going on underwater there? Was there a lot of faith in from you and all the other guys that were there? Like, hey, you know, let's let's find a way to get ourselves through this that way. Yeah, when when you're in the service, especially in the submarine community, you got 110, 120 guys in a steel tube underwater. Listen, you have to trust your guy on your right, your guy on your left, and the rest of the 108, 120 guys on that boat that they're doing their job. And they're not going to sink you or, you know, drop something on a metal plate and kind of give you away. Uh, it, it's, it is high, high pressure. And I mean high pressure. Uh, and, um, there's so much to it. It's hard to kind of explain it in a short uh, discussion. But yeah. you have to trust with, without waiver that when the general alarm goes off and it says fire in the machinery room, nobody, nobody talks. Everybody just moves. So you have to, you have to know that everybody's going to where they need to be and everybody's doing what they're trained to do. And, it, and if it is an instinct, then everything is going to implode. And again, imagine if you will, just put yourself in a box, oh, light, a, light something on fire and see how quickly smoke and fumes and everything else happen. Now, now do that underwater. And then again, do it in a military environment, someplace where, you know, you don't, you, you just can't jump up to the surface and say, hey, you know, it's, let's surface and kind of get out of this. No, it is fight the fire, succeed in the fire or die. And that that's where fear kind of, there, there's no time for fear. And in the same breath, you have to trust everybody that they're not going to fail to do their job. You talk about dropping a, a, a fork or a knife on a plate not to give you away. Tell me a little more about that. I, I don't, you're talking about to give away your position from the sound? Yes, you, if you've ever clicked two rocks underwater, it'll hurt your ears, right? Okay. So imagine metal on metal, a submarine, and think about how far that noise can travel, right? So yeah. when you're when you don't want to be found, or you know, um, U.S. attack submarines, one of their key roles was tracing Russian subs, right? You know, you got to shoot the other subs before they launch their missiles. So you you need to be extremely quiet. So you don't you know you don't need somebody dropping a wrench on a metal deck, all right? You don't want to be giving your position away. Listen, if a whale farts, you can hear it. Trust me. Wow, that is that. I, I don't think, I'll bet you 99% of the people out there that think about submarines have no clue that that's part of the, that's the part of the scenario, is being quiet, that quiet. Well, we actually call it ultra quiet. It's when you shut off all the air and you turn off all the pumps and everybody goes quiet. We would, we would go, and they're still doing it, all right? You'll go port and starboard, meaning six on, six off, for months on end. And I mean months on end. What does that mean? That means for six hours, you're on watch battle stations, and then six hours, you're on your rack. That's it. That's it for months and months on end while you're on patrol doing whatever it is you're, you're, you're supposed to be doing, whether it's an op box or, you know, intel or, you know, chasing a Russian sub. And you have to be quiet literally yourself as well, right? There's conversations allowed or there's not? Oh, there's conversations, you know, yeah. but you're, you're, not, you're not talking at the volume you and I are talking. Wow. Just not. Even with today's events, the whole thing about being underwater, most people are having their conversations around the table about going underwater and, and the risk and the dangers and everything inherent with that. So, again, all I can tell you is <laughs> you're a brave human being for doing all that. I, I Again, I, I know this whole country thanks you for that. Can, can you tell me when you talk about I want to say this this culture that that kids have today? How do we get more kids to think about what you've done and the experiences that you've had and and to appreciate 
the fact that this country is only a couple of hundred years old and it is what most people call an experiment. You know, the democracy thing is still an experiment in, in the making. How do you get kids to understand how absolutely valuable not only a gentleman like you are, but the freedoms that we have and how fragile that is? <laughs> I guess I would start with losing that abject obscenity of self above all else. That's the thing I see the most. If you look at the submarine community, at least when I was in there, um, it, it, this wasn't a, it, what, what are you doing for me? Or, or it's all about me. This is about what is everybody doing together? You worried about the community. Now, again, that's, that's the way I grew up. You know, I, I worry about the rest of my family. And what I see in this, in this generation is it's, it's a me, me, me generation, a selfie and, you know, I'm, I'm the important one. What I, what, I, what I see happening is a lot of the liberties and the freedoms that I had, whether it was, you know, um, not being tied to a computer or, or a phone, um, having conversations and, and doing things that I don't see young people doing today. Um, I think those, I think the loss of those freedoms that's happening now, right? The loss of privacy, a big one, you know, I think those things are starting to catch up with the younger generations. I think like, like for me, I had two grandfathers, one in submarine force that was did war patrols in Japan, off the coast of Japan, and one that landed on the beach in Normandy. So for me, I had a lot of, uh, you know, warrior mentality around me, so to speak. And, and if 20 years of, of war from this country, I think that generation from 2000 to 2022, whatever, whatever that cycle is, as that generation, that 20 year window keeps moving forward, I think what they're breeding is the next generation, the next great generation. That's what I think. And I think we're just in a, a swing down of losing parts of us and we're realizing it. The older generations, the middle and some of the youngers, they'll start seeing as we start swinging back out of this um, you know, cycle of insanity, I guess is the, the best way to put it. But I, I, I have to believe that a generation that went to war for 20 years to fight for freedom in an all volunteer force, 20 years. Remember, World War II and all the wars prior, there was a draft. There's been no draft since post-Vietnam. Was it 86 was the last time we had a draft in place? So it's all volunteers. So again, I think all of those pieces coming together are a key part to where we're going. Now, I have a deep, deep faith, and I have to believe that all of our veterans that have been doing this for you know 20 years, I believe they're, like most, most veteran you know, cycles will lead us into the next uh, wave of good things. And again, like all things, you know, things die and uh, things have to end to have new things kind of come about, Ken. So I, I think that all the good stuff that we had, we kind of lost, but I firmly believe it's coming back. Well, God bless for that, because I it's, it's funny because I look at my my 26 year old daughter and her husband and I think. They have to look at what they see now on, you know, politics and TV and whatever. And they have to say to themselves, OK, none of that even makes any sense. You know, you have like multiple buildings that do the same thing and you have multiple 
you know, uh, multiple opinions that just seem completely backwards to reality and spending $1 two different ways and duplicity and all that other kind of stuff. And they look at it and I, I almost, I'm, I'm thankful that you said that because I'm hopeful too. My, my, my daughter and her husband seem so much more pragmatic and so much less emotional about a lot of these things. Like, well, okay, two plus two equals four and that's it. It's not two plus two equals what we think it might be one day and change the next. And so they, I, I look at them and I think they're going to get into their governance time of their life. And they're going to say, no, 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 we don't need three buildings to do one job. And we don't need this and we don't need that. And and we have we have enough intelligence now and, in, and enough, I should say, um, you know, technology to create efficiencies where we can streamline this. So I am hopeful and I don't run into many people, uh, Doug, who are hopeful like you. So I'm, I'm so glad that you are because so many times you hear, oh, the next generation is worthless and they all want this and they all want to stay on their screens all day long and they're not focused and whatever. But I, I have to believe that, that that isn't true. And I have to believe that there's hope that that's going to happen. And I have faith that it is going to happen. So here's a fun fact for you. Did you know that only 14 out of every 100 adults describes themselves as happy? That's a pretty low number. The question you have to ask yourself is, are you one of those lucky few or do you feel like there's more to life out there? I've been fortunate to work with some brilliant course designers to create a course that will help you define and build comfort, peace, and freedom in your life. I call it the path. And it is a great way to help you identify what you really want out of your life and to develop the skills necessary to go get it. When you join the course, not only will you receive a digital copy of my Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, but you'll also get lifetime access to the best goal-setting tactics that I have used to turn myself into an effective, goal-oriented machine and take control of my mind, my money, and my life. All of this great information is normally available to you at $129. However, for you amazing listeners of today's podcast, you can get lifetime access to the path for just $99. And if you do it today, I'll do you one better. Get involved now and I'll actually donate a free course and a free book to any one of your choosing. So you can not only change your own life, but help someone else in the process. And what can be better than that? So just use the link in today's show description and the discount code podcast to get started. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Doug Fleming, thanks for coming on uh, the show, the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom podcast. I, when I go, when I talk about how there's 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 several ways to be successful. You can get you can go to a college, get a higher uh, a higher education degree. You can go to a tech school, a trade school. You can go right into into the workforce an apprenticeship, or you can go into the military. So the question I have for you there is, is, is there a path, is it clear enough for somebody that goes into the military that, because some people go in and they stay there for 30 years, some people go in and they do their thing and they get out. Is there enough clarity there when you're going into the military that you can see your exit plan, like you could see the the two possible exit plans, one being a career there and one being an exit and then going into something else? Yeah, Ken, I got to tell you, unfortunately, our, our, our military, the exit plan, while it's better than it was when I was in, still isn't where it needs to be. 
Um, Ryan Landry uh, has a podcast. This guy's got some great stuff. He's focused on that transition piece. He does a lot of podcasts on, uh, or his podcast stays focused on transition. I was on with him some time ago, and he's doing a great job with putting the spotlight on on that transition. So the short answer to your question is no. Most of the time, especially when you're young, you know, 22 to 25, 26, if you're coming out of the military, you know, you're kind of lost. You want to lean on what you did in the military, but everybody from the military, everybody that's out of the military that I talk with, they say the same thing. It's like, I don't fit in. And I said, I know. So one of the great things I, I enjoy about you and your show and what you do is you talk about things like construction and the trades. So for me, when I came out, I was as lost as it gets. And I was discharged from the Navy to the VA and handed a disability. You know, now, I'm, now I'm really out of whack. So that's, that's a whole other discussion. But I ended up going into construction. And I knew I had, you know, I had a body so I could do some hard work. And it always made me feel better to do that physical work. And then I kind of started studying it. And I, I realized that since World War II, when everybody came back and Leventown kicked up, they, they changed from a carpenter building a whole house to just doing it in individual trades. Because I was having such a hard time getting somebody to explain to me each aspect of the building trade, Ken. So right. I set myself out to learn every single aspect of how to build a house. And I went from being a laborer to somebody who owned heavy equipment and learned all the operations of road building all the operations of concrete, framing, roofing, siding. I'm a layout carpenter, layout framer, finish trim, cabinets. There's not there. I could build, and I've taught my sons to do the same thing. They could build a house from the trees to the keys all by themselves, with the exception of MEP, you know, mechanical, plumbing, and electric. Now, now saying that, what I'm watching, Ken, this is another reason why I'm optimistic. You know, and again, I have a deep faith. And my optimism tells me by watching. As, as I kind of started transitioning out of being the warrior and into the wise man, so to speak, the construction industry was at its pure bottom. You couldn't find framers to save your life. Now, here in New England, or at least in this part of Connecticut, framers at five or six bucks a foot, that was the high end. Now it's at 12 to 14 bucks a foot, all right? And we're watching the, the transition of everybody coming back into the trades. It's now fashionable to be a, you know, a plumber, a, a framer a carpenter, a home builder, but there's, there's nobody, there's very few people that know how to both mentor and understand both the industry and the building process. And there's so much to it, the banking, the finance, all sure. of that stuff in, you know, 50, well, 50, 70, 80 years ago, there was a lot of people in the pipeline that did that, as you know, Ken. So what I see is I see a hunger of, of this generation. Again, I, I want to call it the 2000 to 22 2022 veterans, right? That 22 year window. I see them pulling us right back into what we used to be a strong economic um, force behind the trades. Last part of that little piece is, you know, you, you want to go spend two, three, four hundred thousand dollars on college to get a 40 or $50,000 job. I got a friend of mine who's making 300 grand a year, 300 grand a year as a framer. He's got a four man crew. He's got a he's got a probably two hundred thousand in equipment, but he makes three hundred thousand dollars a year as a framer, with three guys loving it. He's loving life. You know, you're you're so speaking my language. It's it's really insane, and I, I always talk about the perfect storm that we went through, and it seems like it began right after I graduated high school because in my high school, and you'll remember this, 
you could walk down the hallway and you could see somebody changing the transmission at a Mustang or maybe welding something together, maybe turning a table for a leg for a table or even hairdressing or baking or whatever. You could see in shop class those types of opportunities. And that's where people accidentally fell in love with that that career. I mean, they would say, wow, this is really cool. I didn't know this existed. I'm now building furniture. And I think it's awesome. I want to be a carpenter or whatever. And um, they replaced those rooms with computers when, when they got rid of all that equipment. And I thought, okay, that's, I get it. We need to learn computers, but why couldn't we have done both? Why did it have to be one or the other? And then, you know, you pair that up with the fact that when I was younger, my brothers and I went in the woods and we built tree forts with lumber and nails and hammer. And we did the whole thing, right? You're you're not doing that when you're building a city on your cell phone and you you know you're 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 staring at a screen all day. It's not the same experience. So now you've got colleges out there that are saying to guys, you know, to the sons and daughters of you and I, you know, if you don't come through our path, you're not going to amount to anything. And I look back at them and I think, okay, so that's never been true in the history of our country. It isn't true today. And based on what you're doing to steer all these young kids, you're creating such a huge supply and demand problem right now that you're actually making the case for us that, yeah, he who he or she who decides to do what everybody else isn't willing to do is going to have a really great life. I like an amazing life. And I'm, I'm like you. I, I know guys that are stonemasons that they make quarter million dollars a year and they have no one to leave their company to. You know, they're retiring. I, I know electricians that are, I know plumbers the same way. You know, oh, he's just, my daughter went to Princeton, but he's just going to be a plumber. Really? I know that kid. He's got six bands, 12 employees, and he's just murdering it right now. He's absolutely killing it. So there's this, this overall perception that I hope changes. And that's what I'm fighting to change because, you know, you and I both know that by the time you put your feet on the floor in the morning, getting out of bed to the time you get to the office or church or school, you're crossing 10,000 blue collar jobs that are not only still out there, but viable and financially, you know, rewarding and what have you. So yeah, we have to, I guess we, we have to change that. So in your position, I put you in front of 10,000 parents in an auditorium. What do you say? I mean, what do you say to try to change that? Well, let's focus on what's going on right now. We've got veteran. My wife, my wife owns a construction company. I'm out. I've, I've retired from all that. She owns a construction company where our, our oldest son, we got six kids, our oldest son and our youngest son, they run it. John Paul's pushing, what's he, 40 now? And he runs all the equipment. He runs the jobs. He manages the, the whole thing, him and my wife. And our youngest son, who started out with uh, Holy Cross, okay, he was going to be a doctor. And he said, it's not for me. He wanted, to, he wanted to come back and he wanted to go into construction. He started a company himself, doing well on that. And now he's running the construction piece. I would, I would tell them, I would tell that group of, of 10,000, look at what our veterans are doing. And this is a great piece to both talk to that crowd, the parents and the veterans. A lot of veterans that now come to work here, they, they get some, something happens that they don't expect. Um, one of the recent veterans who's suffering PTSD, he's going through the VA, he's doing all those things that I'm helping with, okay? But at the same time, he stepped into construction for the first time in his life. He's out there digging ditches, banging nails, putting up walls as we're doing, this is house construction and road building. Sure. And he's saying, I have never felt this way since I left the military. 
Every single day, he's got that feeling of accomplishment. When he gets up in the morning, he's excited to get there because he's going to do something that gives him a physical reward and then a, a spiritual reward, as I call it. When you build something and watch it go up, it's exciting. Like you say, Ken, it's not on your phone. You're building something on your phone. What is that? But when you can watch a house that you can see somebody living in, or you can build a road and you say, man, people are going to be driving 80 miles an hour down this road. It gets excited and it's very, very rewarding. So what I would encourage parents to do is to take your children to places that'll give them that level of reward. When I had, when my kids were young, I, I sent them up in a plane. I said, go see if you like flying. I sent they went parachuting. They did all this crazy crap that I could think of so that they would get ex exposed to certain things. Of course, I exposed them to construction and, you know, the bulk of them, I don't want anything to do with that. It's dirty. It's everything else. But the crazy part is they all seem to filter back, whether yes. they're working in construction or they need those skills because they own a house or they want to build a garage on their house or a barn on their house. Okay. So to kind of close that loop and give you a, a direct answer, I would tell, I would tell those people, the first thing you have to give them is faith. You have to give those kids belief and you have to trust that they're going to, they're going to find a path. If you keep throwing things at them, say, Hey, listen, I tried this in life. I tried farming in life. I tried these things. Because right now we're teaching our 38 year old daughter and her, her husband how to farm. And we've got, you know, largest garden we've had in a long time because we're hands-on turning that information over as they're realizing the cost of vegetables and fruit is what, four or five times what it was. Yeah. And now they're looking at me and saying, this is, this is $200 a week or $400 a week in vegetables that we're not paying. Um, so I would say, Ken, that the biggest thing is to keep the faith and keep helping them, your children, see more and more options until something starts sparking inside of them and then help them, help them, help them, help them. Don't give it to them. Make them do the work. All right. Remember, we're parents. We want to we want to do so much for our kids. Oh, yeah, for but sure. They can't. They, they've got to earn it. Just like boot camp. You got to earn your way out of boot camp. You got to earn your stripes. Same thing. Help them by using your wisdom. This is one of the titles of a book I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through, so to speak. Warrior to wisdom. OK, we we wow. like you and I, we used to be warriors. We used to be out there doing the battle every day. Yeah. Now we're called to turn that information over. So that crowd of 10,000, listen, it, your kids are listening to you. Even when they tell you they don't like you, they're not listening to you. I don't want to hear it. Keep telling them the wise stuff that you've learned so that when you do drop dead, it's still in their head, Ken. You know, it, it's so funny. I actually wrote a letter. It's on my website. I wrote an open letter to parents and I said, you know, I get it. I'm a parent myself. You birthed your child. You clothed your child, you fed your child, you've raised your child, you've tried to keep them safe, you tried to give them basic things, you sent them to school K through 12, you did the things that you're supposed to do, okay? And then for some reason, now all of a sudden in the past 20 years, you feel like you're not done with them unless they have a college degree in their hand. And, and it's I don't know where that came from. I mean, it must be really good marketing on the college people, on the college people's parts, because they they don't even feel like they're they're done, you know, creating their child or or raising them to their fullest extent unless they have this degree. And I think that's one of the things that we need to kind of undo is the fact that are you looking to say that you finished raising your child because he or she is highly educated? 
or because they're self-sustaining, they have a passion for what they want to do, they can get in and out of situations, they can critically think, they can change a tire, they can rake a yard, they can dig a tree. I mean, what is it? Okay. Are you looking for an educated person or a financially self-sufficient person? Not that they're mutually exclusive, but you know what I'm what I'm getting at. I mean, what's the total goal here? The goal is to create someone who can be a contributor to the world and be happy with themselves. Okay. And 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 that's why this stand back moment, and you just mentioned it, and I'm so glad you did. When I used to be, do landscaping, I, I'd be planting all these beautiful pine trees and moving these huge boulders into place and putting mulch and all that kind of stuff. And then at the end of the day, I'd lean back on my shovel and I'd look at that. And I actually named this the stand back moment. We'd stand back and we'd look at that and we'd go, holy shit, look at look at how cool that is. That's going to stand the test of time. That tree will be here a hundred years. Right. And 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 we all kind of like got this kind of goosebumpy thing. And then we're like, okay, you know, on to the next one, right? Let's go have a beer. But I mean, I, I don't think you get that in, in the 15th floor of some cubicle when you're trying to create something and you're not sure what you're a part of in this whole process. So thank you for that. I, I, I'm, I'm so glad that I'm so happy to talk to you today about that particular piece. You, I'm going to get to the book, right? One more question. And then we're going to get to that. You said that you felt the need to be an advocate after uh, the service. Um, and you still do that. And that's, that's fantastic. What what services do you think are missing that you felt the need to volunteer and go do something like that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And the shortest answer I can give you is watching my fellow veterans commit suicide. Wow. Wow. Like I had mentioned before, my first witness of attempted suicide was in boot camp. My first exposure to suicide was in the military. My next was shortly after I was uh, discharged, um, fellow vet committed suicide. And once I, once I was inside the VA system and I saw what was going on, and again, this was um, post-Vietnam, uh, seventh floor of the Boston VA, which had patients lined up in the, in the hallways wow. and the feces was, the, people oh. were begging you to hold their hands. It was vile. And that's where I was going to get my disability rating. And I kid you not, it was literally some kind of doctor and I was in a closet there was literally a broom there and there was two chairs. Okay. So you clearly, it used to be a, a, a broom closet and that's where I got evaluated for a disability. And over time and, and fighting with the VA to try and get treatment and get a plan, a course of action, that would never happen. And back then you had to go find your records and walk around with them. What I learned, what I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is I learned that the VA causes PTSD. The VA causes more trauma within a veteran than a veteran can even understand. You sign a contract that says, listen, okay, if you get hurt, there's no workers' comp. We'll take care of you for the rest of our life. We'll write you a check. All right. Well, you go, okay, let's go. And then you find out that you have to battle tooth and nail every step of the way to get any of those benefits. That's where I, you know, I, I have that warrior mentality and it just kind of transitioned to helping people because people were hearing my story. And then they started asking me, well, how did you do that? And eventually I would just bypass the whole damn system. And I would pick up the phone and call the chief of staff at the, at the campus, wherever the hell I was. I, I was so tired of all the crap in between. I go right to the chief of staff and say, listen, here's the deal. I want answers. And I started getting results. 
And then I ended up going to vet, vet force, which I lost on a bet to my uncle who was a Navy SEAL, did two tours of Vietnam. And I spent 10 years in Washington, D.C., advocating for veterans entrepreneurship. Great organization, got some incredible laws passed. But I learned, I made a lot more connections. And at one point, I had direct email and phone communication, cell phone with the secretary of VA. Quick example, a vet out of New York was shut out of the VA, couldn't get his meds. The guy was ready to commit suicide. I called the secretary of VA. He had him in two hours, had him rounded up and back into the VA, and they, they, they took care of him. When you, can, when you can get to that level, it's so much more helpful to say I'm an advocate. But in the same breath, Ken, you, you can't just do all these things. Like we're talking about kids and parents and all that. We've got to teach the veterans to take those steps. Ironically, a vet that I'm working with right now, for three weeks now, I've been telling him, you, you've, got to, you've got to move forward on your PTSD. You've got to move forward on mental health. I'm watching him degrade, all right? Today, I picked up the phone and called the DAV directly and said, this guy is going to be calling you. And when we're done here, I'm going to his, I'm going to where he's leaving work, and I'm going to put the cell phone in his hand to help him make that call. Now, the reason for that is I'm worried that he's this close to being a, a statistic, 22 a day. Yeah. For me, becoming a vet, an advocate was twofold, literally veteran suicide firsthand witness. And second, my experience with the VA for you know almost 40 years has been such a nightmare to be polite. Um, I, by default and by warrior mentality, became an advocate. And I have such a loud mouth and such a, a booming, you know, coming out of me that it makes it easy for me. And I don't worry about who to call. The last thing I'll say on that is I had to learn to undo a lot of what I learned in the military, chain of command. You go to the VA and you're thinking chain of command. I tell somebody and the next person is going to take care of it. That's not how it works. You have to fight tooth and nail. So you've got to learn to bypass the chain of command to go get things done. What I'm trying to teach veterans, a bunch of these things that I just uh, spit out to you, and it's, and it's been eye-opening. Guys are like, there's no chain of command at the VA? Oh, well, there is, but just bypass it because it won't work. And lastly, I guess on one of the reviews of the book, it was written by um, a, a VA therapist named uh, Maria Ren. That tells the tale of what it is to be a veteran fighting for your rights and her on the inside saying how difficult it is for the veterans from the inside. You know, I have to tell you, I don't think most people really understand why we don't just make this the most amazing process for returning veterans. I mean, look at what they've done. So you pick up a gun that weighs 40 pounds. You carry a 100-pound pack on your back. You go sleep in the desert in a hole that you dug. You walk miles a day with this 100-pound pack, and it's 105 degrees out. And you, you know, you're hoping your next meal is going to be good. You go do all that and then get shot at. And tell me when you get back, you don't deserve the best freaking treatment there is in the world. I, I don't, I just don't understand that. And I think I'm not alone. There's a lot of people that just don't get, we're funding all of these ridiculous programs in the government. And yet it's hard for you to get what you need after you were dodging bullets or living underwater in a submarine for months on end. I, I, I just don't, I don't really get that. And that's probably a whole nother conversation, but well, let me jump in there because this is really going to spark you on, on this. I didn't get any legitimate treatment until the recent laws changed that allowed me to go to private care. I have had more success in private care in the last handful of years than the previous decades. 
The VA said, literally, go home, lie down, and prepare to die. There's nothing we can do for you. Wow. Okay. And I turned and I said, I, you know, I, I won't say what I said, but you know where I'm going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and now I'm up at UConn Health and these people are godsends. They're chipping away at each problem. I'm, I'm getting my thumbs replaced because the excruciating pain is just, finally, I've got some answers on this. They solved the problem in my, in my neck with, with shots and treatment and other things. First time ever. The last time I got a shot at the VA, I'm kidding you not, the lady jabbed me right in the shoulder, squeezed in. I was in pain for three weeks. I swore then I would never go back. And I was about, about eight or 10 years ago outside of primary care. So the way to answer that question is, to me, is very simple. All political people, politicians, all of them must use the VA. If, you, if you're employed by the federal government, yeah. you're required to use the VA. Full stop. That is, your, that is your health system. Second, if you're a veteran, your ticket was already written that you can choose your private care, period. Full stop. And you'll turn this thing on a dime. Yeah, that that makes so much sense because get those people up there, some of those narcissists to actually go and use what what you guys had to use and watch how quickly that switch flips. Right. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. I hope everybody hears that and I I hope that we can get that out there. So we're going to get we're going to get to the book. Twenty four hundred and forty two steps to crazy. It, it, It took me a minute to figure out who crazy was. And then I then I got it. And and I got to tell you, if you think. If you think it's brave to be underwater in a submarine, try writing a book about what what Doug went through, because this this is a sobering tale of of what it's like to live in an abusive household. And um, first off, let me just get this out. What's the title about? Twenty four hundred forty two steps to crazy. You know, well, the, taking that first step to do something that you don't want to do is always the toughest. Right. Yeah. And there's sometimes in life that even if there's, say, 2,442 steps that you have to take to get somewhere, every step, whether it's the first one or anyone in between, is just as tough except the last one. Because that final step, 2442, I would enter that world of insanity. So when when you read the book, I don't want to give away the full meaning, let, let people kind of figure it out later in the it's Later good. in the book, I encourage everyone. I'm going to show it again. I encourage everybody to read it. This this book is really good. Well, the other thing I didn't know, and this is this is a little crazy. Remember I told you I had a deep faith. In the book, you'll see uh, Bethany. I had to, I called her up and I said, "Hey, listen, I, I put you in a book," and uh, you know, she's like, oh, "It's all good." She called me back and said, "So I read the book, and w- I also Googled 2,442. Where did you get that number?" I said, "Well, it's the actual number from you know, you you saw it, but." Yeah. And she goes, did you know that was a, an angel number? I said, what? No way. So wow. she had Google. If somebody Googles 2,442, it's actually an angel number, and there's only a couple of them. So it, it kind of gives you goosebumps when you, yeah. when you don't realize something like that comes around, especially after you've read the book, right? Wow. 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 That, that is really cool. That, that, has a, that has a whole other layer of mustard to that. That's for sure. Right? Who is who's, who's the reader? Who do you want to read this? I haven't really personally identified who I want to read it. If I had my preference, it would be anybody who's struggled with any form of trauma. If I really had to, if I could pick a group, I would say every single veteran, read this book, read this book. Most, should should I say most, many, so many, a lot of enlisted veterans come from some form of broken home. Okay. I don't want to classify every single enlisted person came from a busted home, but the guys that have been 
you know, who have enlisted at 17 or 18, you, you know what the hell I'm talking about, yeah. right? You went in the military at a very young age because you were either trying to get away from something or yeah. trying to get to something, something, right? So if you've been through things in your life prior to joining the military, part of the reason I'm telling my story is to help you tell your story. Because what I didn't fully realize the importance of that timeline that I wrote about in book one it, and until Maria Wren, the VA physical therapist or mental health therapist, had written the review who identified how critical it is to talk about your early childhood trauma so that you can move forward on your military, for example, trauma. If you're in the military, and again, people that uh, go to boot camp and can't take it and try to commit suicide, that's trauma to them. And you can't, you can't, I can't gauge it. I can't say to anybody that my trauma is more than your trauma or their trauma is less than my trauma. I can't. Trauma is defined by the person. It is. Period. Full stop. Okay. How, how do guys go and become Navy SEALs when, when people can't barely get through boot camp? Those guys can handle trauma differently than people who haven't had. Okay. So somebody's trauma is, is solely their, their, what they see it as. This book is meant to tell you, you can, if I can survive, you can survive. I guarantee you, if you can, if you read this book, you'll, you'll relate to many different things in your life. That's in this book. I've had so many people come and tell me their story and that's kind of where it unfolds. Meaning what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get people to talk about their trauma. If you want to learn to start healing, to start heal, start healing, You've got to tell your story. So I've opened up myself to listening to people's stories. And I'll close that with this. I spend a fair amount of time talking to veterans' families almost more than I talk to veterans. And when they ask me, well, what do I do when my brother, my spouse, my tells me about these things? My answer is, listen, don't analyze it. Don't critique it. Don't, try Don't to do it. anything except listen. If they want to be held, hold them. If they want to be questioned, okay, they'll tell you. But don't start asking questions. Just listen. Because most veterans, and, and I don't know any veterans that I've ever met that have said it differently, they just want to be heard. Once I started telling my story, I realized how much I was letting go, Ken. I, I was shocked at how much was coming off of me. And now that I'm listening to many people's stories, whether it's child abuse or trauma in the military or rape, um, as they tell that story, I can watch their eyes start to come back. That glow, that piece of life that they lost starts to come back. So that's kind of the rewarding part for me about telling the story. See, it's and, and again, thank you for that. It's so important for people to hear and to know this because, again, we're putting people on buses and planes and trains and sending them to foreign places and asking them to put their lives on the line so that we can go to a restaurant this afternoon and have a, a meal and outside on the sidewalk and, you know, not fear for our lives, right, or or be oppressed in any way. It's, it's so important for people to, to, to hear what you just said. You actually took my next question because I my next question was, did you write this as a cathartic, a therapeutic event for yourself as well as having other people read it? No, I didn't. But uh, the VA mental health, um, you know, that I spent 10 years, um, 15 years 
dealing with, and then private mental health, they all said the same things. You know, they all kept trying to get me to talk about my childhood. And so I want to talk about my childhood. Okay. Yeah. And, it, and again, remember I told you I've got a, a lot of faith. I didn't want to tell this story, Ken. I didn't. I, and I, and I didn't, didn't understand why the story has the timeline that it has until recently when I'm, when I, okay, okay that's book one, book two's on its way. And then book three will be the military years. Now I understand why it, it's in that timeline, but I didn't want to tell the story. I had to, I had to get slapped around a little bit by, you know, as I like to say, the baby Jesus and his helpers. All right. They knocked me around a bit. To get me, and they sent a few messages that said, write the damn book. Okay. And then they yeah. wouldn't leave me alone. And finally I sat down and said, I, I wrote the book. Only after that did I start feeling the, the release. Okay. And, I, and I'm telling you, it, it, it's becoming as rewarding as, you know, getting out of boot camp or my first child being born or grandchildren, or all those major milestones that we, you know, kind of think back on. This is becoming one of those, one of those moments. Again, it didn't happen overnight and it, and it took a lot to write this. There were days where I didn't talk to my wife and I'll close that with this. For all you folks who have never told your story, neither did I. As I like to say, I've been with my wife for 50 years <laughs> and I never told her any of what's in the book or what's coming in the next books. Okay. Wow. In that first book, when it was done and published, I handed my wife a copy. And that's when she sat down and read the book and learned what I went through. She spent a few days, um, you know, it was, it was pretty emotional. I'm sure. I'm sure she spent a few days thinking, how did, how did this all happen, right? And how did you keep it so buried? Yeah, which, which, which I'm, uh, it's amazing because now you're, you're not only – showing people how to get rid of it, but I mean, not how you got rid of it yourself, but how, how they can get rid of it by just telling the story. And I think it's really cool that you say, don't try to fix their problems. Don't try to comment on their problems. Just listen, just listen to what they're telling you and let them, let them get it out because you're doing more service by allowing that to happen than to try to, to, to stifle or change those conversations. So in my book, I always talk about the three favorite words that I have that kind of interconnect with each other called comfort, peace, and freedom. I've asked everybody that I've had on my podcast the same same few questions. So I'm going to throw them at you real quick. You're sitting in what looks like a very comfortable place right there. You're surrounded by a lot of the cool things that 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 make up your experiences, both in the military and in your life. I think we're all we should all be chasing our own version of what Nirvana is. And I'm even working on a course for for military vets to talk about how they can see their future. They have to define it as to what does their future look like to them if they could get it the way they want? If they could have, they could live this way, man, that would be so cool if I could live this way at this level. So I talk about comfort, peace, and freedom. So for, for you, sir, and, and again, I appreciate your time today. Where do you feel like you are your most comfortable? In the middle of nowhere with a lot of guns, no noise other than nature, and my wife. And Montana would be a great place. Wyoming would be a great place. No cell phones, no, no nothing. Just yeah. completely left alone. Okay. That's that's where I am most comfortable. That's where I'm happiest with my wife in the middle of nowhere. Of course, she's the opposite. You know, <laughs> she wants the kids and the grandkids, and you know, so you know, and I'm most comfortable not talking about me. 
And yet those are the two things that are in front of me that I must do because I, I, I have to keep the faith and I have to keep moving because I'm here to help others. So let's talk about this one and let's, let's try to make it a different one than you just did. So, because I really want to get this home. There's a certain place to find peace for me. It it could be when I'm walking my dogs in the park. And like you said, it's super quiet. Nobody's around. All I hear is, is nature. Or when I'm sitting on my boat and I can't see land anywhere all the way around me. Okay. I can't see land at all. That's a pretty cool spot. Or Maybe when I'm on that on the golf course and it's just a perfect day, you know what I mean? And it's you got your buddies and you're just like, man, this is so cool. It's so peaceful. Where's peace for you? So, like you just said, um, fishing offshore, right? And but but it has to be through through midnight, and you have to wait wow. until the anticipation. Your your lines are still in the water. The balloons are floating out there, holding the lines up. You know your fishes are wiggling, trying to chase a tuna, and you and you can see the sun as it starts bouncing off of the stars and you wait and you watch and you watch and until you watch that sun just dance right across the waves, right past you as you're at literally the crack of dawn. To wow. me, that's a very magical moment. One that I enjoyed when I was in the military, right? As we've traveled a bit in surface, but once I started going offshore fishing, ah, uh, Ken, I got to tell you, that for me is a, is a peaceful, purifying, cleansing moment. Love it. So you start at midnight and wait for the sunrise is what you're saying. Yeah. When, when I go offshore, right. You know, I'll, I'll make sure I get a nap, especially now I'm getting older, right. Got to get them naps in, you know, I'll make sure I get that nap in so that I'm up from two, three o'clock in the morning until that sun comes up, you know, anywhere from what, four 30 off the East sure. coast to Gulf coast is probably seven o'clock or whatever yeah. it is, you know, you're up so that you can, you can, you can watch it bounce off the, what is it, the ionosphere? Yeah, right? bouncing around up there until until it dances right across the waves. It's just a magical time. You know? So finally, uh, what's what's freedom for you? Like, where do you say, you know what? This is really cool. Um, this is where I feel like everything goes away. This is where I this is what freedom means to me, or or, or where it means to me. Yeah, this one's gonna this one's gonna catch you off guard and surprise you a little bit. Freedom to me is when I have accomplished what I'm here to accomplish. And I go, I get to go back to God. So when I'm done here doing all the things that I'm supposed to do, and I'm done helping my family and helping all the other vets, writing the books, when I'm done with those things that I'm here to do, and I can say, I did it. And God says, yes, you can come home. Then I'm happy. Because wow. to me, being back in heaven is peace. I, I couldn't have had a greater conversation with you today. Um, I, I, um, it, it just blew me away. I'm, I'm, I'm humbled by what you've gone through and the things that you're doing. And I just so appreciate it. I, I would ask you what's next for you, but I mean, I already hear there's another book and then there's another book after that. What else is going on in your world? So I, I, I do a lot of veterans work. Um, we've got some, some guys drawn about, um, reviving the vet force, um, uh, maybe make it vet force too. And uh, getting a focus on passing new laws uh, for you know transitioning out of the military, getting the, um, the healthcare bills changed so that all veterans have the things kind of the things we were talking about. Yeah. So I've got some guys that are starting to talk about those things. Um, I've been asked to do a, a full time podcast. Um, you know, but I'm I, again I, I like my privacy. I like kind of being to myself. Yeah. 
my, my, the things that I see as a calling that I, that I've got to complete, I've got to write more books. I've got the second book in the uh, crazy series well on its way. I'm writing a, a book on um, hauntings, which again is tied to, it kind of all still goes back to that same thing about talking about your, your, your story. Sure. Um, and I, and I do consulting. I'm helping, I'm helping people with business, helping them um, structure it. I do a lot of mentoring, especially in the, in the business space. So I've got a, I've learned a lot between banking and private finance and funding sure. and capital and how to structure buying equipment and when to expand and when not to. And I really see the construction trade coming back aggressively. So I'm, I'm staying in, uh, around it enough where I can help advise vets, especially uh, disabled vets who fall under the public one, 109461 and want to work in a public or a um, federal sector, uh, how to get into that program. Um, Michelle, a retired colonel, used to run the CVE. It's now over at SBA. So I'm helping people go through the qualifying processes and verification processes and navigating you know, the government insanity. That's the hard part. The easy part is helping guys kind of understand how to put the parts and pieces in place to get their business. So it's an F corp, an LLC, and, you know, kind of that nuts and bolts of, right. um, of business, you know, and then, you know, my, my wife's company, she hires a lot of vets and they're, they're growing. So, you know, I'm trying to help vets find jobs. And at the same time, I'm always helping vets navigate the VA system. So while I'm retired, I do a crap ton of volunteer work you know, for, for our fellow vets. So, no, that's great. Well, again, hats off to you. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom podcast. I know that they can get the book, 2,442 Steps to Crazy, which is Believe in Faith Over Fear. This is the beginning. This is just book number one. Here it is. And uh, you can get it at is it blackhawkbooks.com. Is that where you go? Yeah. Yeah. If you if you want to save some money, get it on Amazon. Okay. Um, if you want to get it through through the Blackhawk website, it's, it's more expensive, you know, cause you, you can't compete with Amazon. They get the right. cheapest rate, oh, yeah. um, but you can buy it through, uh, through, through the blackhawk.com website, but uh, Amazon's just as good, but it's 2,442 steps to crazy by D Paul Fleming. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Appreciate I appreciate, uh, appreciate your time. I appreciate you being here. Um, it was a great conversation and uh, again, love to catch up sometime again in the future. Love to keep the faith, keep moving forward. Well, there you have it. Some great information from some pretty amazing people. Thank you for taking time to listen to today's show, and I hope that you found some value in what you just heard. If this show positively impacted you in any way, please take a minute to leave a positive review or share it with a friend who could benefit from the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom podcast. I'm Ken Rusk. Until next time, I'll talk to you soon.